Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Forever! Dog! I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I love my two dogs equally. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I. Melissa has to introduce me to my doppelganger. Doppelbanger. <laughs> okay, so give a little context for why he said that. Oh, Melissa says there's a man in her neighborhood who looks like me, and I and I said, go out your window and say, "Yoo-hoo!" <laughs> Can. <laughs> Come, would you like to meet my friend who looks just like you and maybe bone? And Melissa said that she can't do that because he's often walking with a paramour. And I assumed they were walking a dog, but no, they're just walking. My parents just go for walks. They do? Yeah. I, I and I would too if I if my knee was in better shape. I miss going. I miss I miss walking and, and it not being a struggle. What do you do about the doggos? I just got really sad. <laughs> I just really went into myself and got really sad. You've ever had to grieve the loss of your mobility while also approaching the the ever creeping time and space continuum slowly <laughs> becoming smaller and smaller as you become older and older. Why would you try to make me more sad? <laughs> Anyway, this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty about the small purpose we all have in this vast universe. The fact that we are, we are with a blinking eyelash on the, on the time. <laughs> I have think something that I've been thinking about. So you know when people what? are like, nothing matters? It's like, how, yeah. can you, how can you say that if you matter to even just one other person? But okay, but what do you mean by matters? Like if somebody cares about you, don't you inherently matter? I think what you're describing is like a society, like a human society. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> guess I, I guess I don't understand what is, I'm going to fuck this up, nihilism? Nihilism? Nihilism, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm learning how many words I say wrong in my head. Uh, because lately I've been trying to say them out loud and it's not going yeah. well. Nihilism. Also, I love that we're like, welcome to this podcast. Ugh, do you know what? What's what, what's the deal with nihilism? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I well, because John was giving me a, a deep dive talk on it on one of our dog walks. And I just like I just I don't buy into the basic premise that that nothing matters because we as humans experience things as though they matter and therefore they matter. But not everyone has people who care about them. Well, I, I think and that's a heartbreaking thing to say. 
It's heartbreaking. <gasps> but I also think I that there are people that hopefully, and, and again, it, I, obviously it's not everyone, but I would hope that, the, you know, like somebody you just bump into on the street or somebody that says hello. Like, I don't know. Like, I, yeah, I, that you say hello. Just like this idea that like, there has to be a greater purpose for things to matter. I don't believe because if you matter to me, then you matter. Yeah. Well, sometimes the Buddhists argue yeah. that nihilism or feeling that nothing matters is actually freeing and that it allows you to, like I, I always, you know, talk about, but it allows you to exist without the anxiety of worrying if something matters because, and I'm butchering Buddhism here, which is again, a title of my upcoming memoir, <laughs> butchering Buddhism by Gabby Dunn. But it, it is like, you know, this idea that because nothing matters, you're free to do whatever you feel is right. And like whatever you, whatever makes like you feel peaceful. Yeah. I don't know. I got it. Like, here's the problem. Uh-huh. The problem me. is, the problem is, is that we have, a, we as a capitalist society have decided that what matters is certain things. And now we're coming to realize that that really doesn't matter. And what matters is, as you said, the small intimate gestures between humans and animals. I was going to say, even if you have like a pet lizard that loves you, right? You matter to the lizard. The lizard matters to to you. Exactly. So this is your sign to get a lizard. Um, (laughs) I love, I love our philosophical podcast just between us. (laughs) This this episode is a real roller coaster, everyone. I will say that, that our interview is, is probably one of my favorites, but it's also, very intense intense, and deals with a lot of trauma um, and violence. And so if you're not in that headspace today, this might not be skip it. This might not be the episode for you or this that segment might not be the episode for you. But our guest is really wonderful. Yeah, our guest is Armand King, and he's going to be talking about his youth mentoring program, but also about his life and his work with at risk youth. And he just shares a lot of really vulnerable stories and is a very on the ground, smart person and has like a lot of really good stuff to say. And it was a really good interview. And later we're going to be discussing our worst takes. So things that we can't believe that we once believed. Oh my God. (laughs) I can't wait. I just, I just open a scroll and it just rolls down the floor. Uh, But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it. International question. International question. International question. Anonymous. Hi, Gabby and Allison. Longtime listener and watcher. First time writer. I've had Mm. millions of questions to write about, but I'm just going to start with this one. First, congratulations to Gabby and Mal. When I saw your announcement on Instagram, I screamed. So happy for you both. The question, I just ended my relationship of two and a half years with the person I would call the love of my life. I, Mm. cis girl, late 20s, bisexual, and practicing polyamory, and my partner, cis guy, six years my senior, decided to call it quits after a beautiful and fraught few years. The main reason we broke up, though there were other problems we had, was that we felt we were too codependent and that I, in particular, needed to spend some time alone. 
I've been in relationships with men pretty much back to back throughout my 20s. That said, none of my other relationships were as enmeshed, positive, or even reliable as this past relationship. He is the first time I've truly felt cared for, to a fault. I felt dependent on him, like I couldn't do things myself. I was scared of being without him, etc. I have OCD and I turned to him for reassurance on a macro scale, something he and I both worked on and did navigate towards the end. But still, I felt frankly like a baby that couldn't do anything for herself without him. Now we've broken up. I'm heartbroken so I can spend time alone. But since we're poly, I was seeing someone else before we broke up. I've continued Mm. to see that person now and I'm very into them. I'm still spending a lot of time alone, journaling more, exercising and answering questions on my own that I would have ordinarily asked my ex. I'm so proud. But the being alone thing, I can't tell how important it is. I'm sure it's different for everyone. But if you have a lot of friends, are you really alone? I think this is partially a conflict I have with my sexuality. I've dated tons of men and only few women. I think it's also something I hate in other people, people who, quote, can't be alone. But what if that's me? I've never, ever sought a relationship. I happen to meet people that I connect with and immediately fall in with them. And it doesn't always work out. I was independent, never in relationships until I turned 20. And then I was never really alone. I've always thought of myself as an independent person, but I don't know if that's true anymore. I don't know what will happen with me and my ex. I still love him, but I do agree that it's best we take time apart and work through our own issues separately. I feel as though we've made the wrong decision, but I think we need to give it more time before changing anything. And something about the changes I've made since breaking up does feel productive and helpful and like growth. Until then, do I have to make a pledge of abstinence? Due to a medical issue, I couldn't have sex for about three years and I'm newly discovering my sexuality. I don't really want to give that up, but maybe I should if I can't keep things casual. TLDR, how important for self-growth is it to be alone? Thank you, thank you, thank you. As a bi-poly person with OCD, you have no idea how much comfort you both have brought me over the years. I love you both and love to watch you grow. Oh, thank you. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think, why do we, Allison, you're a relationship expert. Why are people so obsessed with like, not, I can't be alone. This person can't be alone. Oh, they just broke up and they're with someone new. They can't be alone. Why is this like a, a judgment, a gossip? <sighs> I've thought about this a lot as someone who has been somewhat of a serial monogamist throughout my 20s because I've definitely internalized that messaging and worried about myself. But I think the real issue is not are you single? It's are you able to differentiate between you and your partner? That's what I'm saying. Yes, And those are two different things. But people have lumped them into one thing. And so let me kind of explain what the difference is. So one thing is like, you should have years of not dating and being on your own. Well, guess what? There are plenty of super happy, well-adjusted people who have been with their partner since high school or college. Yep. And never had major times alone because they've just been in that relationship their whole life. They are happy and thriving. The issue is differentiation, I believe is how you say it. But basically it's like, are you able to separate your emotions from another human being, right? So that's sort of like Mm -hmm. getting more into like, are you codependent? And I think that codependency is not something that is super adaptive and that can cause some issues and make it harder for you to thrive while being in a relationship because you put aside what you want, you put aside who you are, you put aside your interests and you're too hyper-focused on this other person and their emotional moods and becoming what you think they want and yada, yada. And so I think that if you are somebody who is codependent and has also 
never had a period of being, you know, single, then it can feel like the solve is to become single, right? Like the solve is to learn how to function in the world without being dependent on another person. But I would also argue, and, and I could be wrong, like, I don't think you necessarily have to be single in order to do that. Like, I think that, I agree. Right. Like, I, I think that it is really difficult to change a dynamic once it's already started. But I believe that it is very much possible. I mean, why else would couples therapists exist? But I think it is so much easier to just say, oh, the the fix is is singleness. The fix is to be, quote unquote, on your own. And I also just think that this priority of of being independent is in a way, way too prioritized in Western culture. And I much prefer the term interdependent, which means that you are connected to other people in your life, but you still have a sense of self. Um, So there's sort of like independence, interdependence, codependence. I think the sweet spot is the middle, which is interdependence. And that's what I'm always striving for. And so like, if you're, if you feel like it's really hard for you to ask somebody for help, right? It's like you have a partner, but you like really prioritize your independence and like, you can't ask them to actually show up for you in any way because you just want to be independent. Like interdependence might be actually what you might be striving for and working for. And so I I feel a lot of things about this. And it's interesting, given that our next topic is like going to be what are what are things that we've changed our mind (laughs) about. But like, I think I used to really feel like if you have a major issue, then you need to leave the relationship to solve it. And I no longer feel that way. I think that you can Mm -hmm. do a lot of growth within a, a, a relationship. And a lot of times being in a safe, secure relationship is kind of the anchor that can maybe allow you to do that growth that maybe you weren't able to do before. Yeah. If your partner is supportive and if your partner doesn't act codependent. Well, right. If they're a secure base. Yeah. But, you know, I also think that that's kind of like radical for some people because I think we have been like told this narrative of like, you should be able to be on your own. But I love the question of like, am I on my own if I have a lot of friends? Like, you know, like exactly we're social beings like we're not meant to just like exist completely fulfilling all of our own needs. Right. Like we're not like a worm that can have sex with itself and then pop out another worm. (laughs) Like, you know, like I am. I am (laughs) popping worms out all over this place. It's actually a problem. It is a delicate balancing act of like, and I think she really touched on some interesting things of like being able to provide more for yourself than maybe you were when you were getting everything from your partner. Sure. And so like that work that she's done to look to herself for reassurance and support instead of like needing it from an outside source, like especially with OCD, like, it, it, it can be really tricky to fall down that hole. Like, I, you know, I would still like call my mom to be like, did I do enough work today? And she'll be like, you're 32. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I haven't right. done it yet since I was 33. So that's pretty cool. But yeah, so I don't know. Like, I guess I don't buy the you. I, I think one of the reasons you might need to take a break following a relationship before getting into another relationship is because you haven't grieved yet. So Mm -hmm. like, I think there is some value to having breaks in between so that you can properly grieve and process and figure out what it is that you want to take from that relationship before Mm -hmm. going into another relationship. But that to me is different than like, and you must hit this quota of alone time. 
Yeah. The thing is, is that there's a lot of shoulds and what's the best way and should I and how. And like, life is short. Like, honestly, like if if you meet someone and you like them and you, wow, you like get along and like, you know, like they they make you happy, then like go towards that. Don't just be like, oh, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm judging myself as someone who can't be alone. It's like, look, man, like we're on a ball revolving around the sun. Okay. We've been talking about nihilism this whole episode. <laughs> if you meet one goddamn person who you want to spend some time with, spend some time with them. My friend just got out of a relationship and she's like, or she's like kind of seeing someone and she's like, go personally, like how you with your ex-fiance, like, She's personally going through this breakup and like grieving, but she's also happy and with this new person and the the growth is happening internally. It's happening within herself. It's it's something that like doesn't mean that you have to like go backpacking alone in Europe and like never talk to anyone. And like this whole like I have to be alone thing or I'm not like strong is created by the media and it's dumb. And I think that you can't use the new partnership as an excuse not to do the work, right? Because it's obvious that like this listener has identified things about themselves that they want to work on. And so it can be easy to just fall into a new relationship and be like, eh, I don't need to do that anymore because I found somebody. But recognizing that you want to still do that work, not just for the health of your relationship, but like for the health of your own internal world. But I do think that both those things can happen at once. I think you can continue, you know, to work on yourself and then also continue to explore something with somebody new. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be the same. It doesn't have to have the same level of intensity or commitment or anything like they're not interchangeable. Right. And also the thing about, you know, rediscovering your sexuality and, you know, having already taken three years off of sex, like like you said, like enjoy the now, you know, and like I, I think that a lot of times we think, well, we'll start living once we figure this out, once I get this thing completely under control then I can have the life that I want. But it's like you missed the whole life you could have had. Yes. So those are my thoughts. Pretty controversial. No, I like them. (laughs) I was like, we agree. We agree. This is going to be boring. But we do agree. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Armand King. So stay tuned. Hi, everyone. Allison here. Anyone who knows me well knows that I love to read. I am always looking for new books, and that is why I am so excited that this episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of the Month's mission is to help readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of emerging authors. It was so fun for me to get to pick which book I wanted to read this month and have it shipped right to my door. Book of the Month makes it easy to decide which book to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles. They pick some of the best new books for you to choose from. All the books are good, so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month. Books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box, and there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options, shipping is always free, and with a loyalty program, you get rewards 
rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment and she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic, a new husband comes out and she's, she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic trying to figure out which one is the best. It is right up my alley and I love it so much. So if you want to take part in Book of the Month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month, go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for $5 with code PEDALS. That's $5 off with code PEDALS. I cannot recommend this enough. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you all about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Right before I found out about this project, my mom made an offhand comment about wanting to write a memoir because she had such a wild childhood and there are all these things she's never really talked to us about. But asking someone to sit down and write a memoir is kind of daunting. So then I got her mylifeinabook.com and now she's getting prompts to answer on a weekly basis and it's a lot easier than just undertaking an entire memoir. I'm so excited to see what my mom does with mylifeinabook.com because she's someone who doesn't always always feel comfortable just sharing about herself, but having these prompts and knowing that I really want to hear her answers is going to inspire her to probably share more with me about her life and her upbringing than I've ever been shared with before. So I'm so excited for that. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code just between us at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com. Use code just between us for 10% off today. just between us it's time for the juiciest most scandalous most controversial segment known to all of podcasting tough questions this week on the show we have armand king who has developed programs that help guide people away from toxic lifestyles and situations as well as inspire others to discover and embark on their true potential he is currently launching a curriculum for young men in hopes to reach more people across the country and beyond called walk with me impact this program curriculum aims to address potential experience trauma felt by at-risk males in elementary middle and high school a centered focus will be placed on educating youth about the dangers of drug abuse and the growing fentanyl epidemic which is fascinating to me thank you so much for being here appreciate it thank you for having me so can you tell us a bit more about like the beginning of your journey like who you are and where you come from I come from I've lived four lifetimes I'll say that you know first part of my life I was a kid you know that was an <laughs> <a> artist <laughs> like all of us were right 
but um, I was an artist and just um, grew up in a kind of chaotic household. But my mind, I was always an adult, even as a little kid. And um, fast forward middle school years, I was a homeless kid bouncing around place to place wherever um, somebody would allow us to stay. And at that point in time, you know, foundation was really shook and got into all kind of toxic activities and, um, you know, started selling drugs, started, thought I was a little wannabe tough gangbanger at that time. And it was a real tyrant at school getting straight F's and D's, but yet they passed me every single semester. Nobody stopped and like, hey, you need summer school. Are you okay? What's going on? No one asked. And I didn't tell them, no, I'm homeless. I am fatherless. I don't know where my mom is. And, you know, all these different things. I don't know what's going on or we're struggling. And then just I became an adult really fast at 15, 16 years old. Found myself in a group of other kids in similar situations. I, I wasn't alone. Yeah, I really just finished high school. I tell everybody I have a sixth grade education, although I did graduate from the school system, but they stopped teaching me in the sixth grade. Right. Yes. On my own from 17, um, 17 years old, I had my own apartment, junior year, senior year, graduated, but I was living on my own, paying rent. I was a grown man. And um, soon after, got got into cannabis, the cannabis industry that's now legal, but I got in and um, went, ended up going to prison for 10 pounds of weed, did three years in federal prison, first offense for something that's now on the stock market and uh, can't get that time back. But that's a whole nother uh, uh, podcast episode. We'll talk about that on another one. Uh, yes, that's that's the the early beginnings. I've been involved in all the di- all the wrong things, which, you know, c- they consider me a lived experience expert now from been engaged in human sex trafficking, engaged in um, drug sales, engaged in, uh, you know, violent activity. Luckily, you know, out of eight of my best friends, I'm one of four that's still alive. Most of my friends are dead. They've died of from guns, died of a drug overdose. And I'm just lucky to be here. And for the past 12 years, not of my choosing, I didn't think I was going to be a community activist, youth leader or anything of the sort. That was not my plan. I wanted to draw comic books and throw reggae concerts. But um, the universe had a whole nother plan and idea for me. And I fell into this work and I've been just using my my experience and the loss and the pain of the lives gone to help other help help kids, help kids and adults, males and females, everybody helping them to get their, um, you know, to, to, to have a better life and not go down the same path I did. When did you realize that you could share your story and that that could be useful to people? When um, a group of young folks came to me ages 16 to 21 and they I had no idea that they they had been following in my wrong footsteps their whole life were growing up the same way I did. And they were in the community I grew up in. They were, um, you know, little brothers and of uh, the girls I was dating and, you know, or, or me and my friends were or around just neighbors. And you, you don't pay attention to the 10 year old in the neighborhood and you're 17, 16. You could care less about that little kid. But that to you, to that little kid, you're you're their role model. And when I found out as an older man, you know, approaching 30 years old or around 30, that I had influence. So then I had lived where they hadn't lived already. I had, you know, I had about 10 years on them of experience. So just immediately just from engaging and under, I understood where they were at because I had been there. So I think that was kind of where I recognized, you know, just it. And it's not like it's a different thing. You coach people who have not been, you know, who may be following in your footsteps or walk uh, younger folks, period. If you've had an opportunity to live life, you know, a little bit more. So I just so happened to live the same lifestyle of 
uh, many of them. So I'm just able to, you know, like, hey, if, if I know there's a roadblock right there because I went through it, I can tell you about it. If I know, don't touch that fire, it hurts because I burnt myself. So it's just through lived experience. I'd love to talk more about um, the program that you're starting. And, you know, something we've talked a lot about on this show is the value of prevention and how often we're trying to help after, clean up a mess. after something has gone right. wrong. But is right. one of like the things that you're striving to do is just to to get in there early uh, to 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 avoid so much of the of the downfalls that happen to these kids that aren't getting the right support. One hundred percent. So I've been doing this work for almost 12 years now, and I help prevent and then I help intervene and I help at the end when people are at their last rope. Right. Like, but it is way I would rather someone not have to go through these rocky paths, not have to go through the chaos and the hurt and pain from the beginning, because once you're dealing and helping someone who's been damaged, been hurt, been abused, been incarcerated for years, you know, life parts of their life missing. That, that it's sad. You still help those individuals. I was that individual. But if we could prevent that, if we can help a kid not to, you know, to oftentimes, especially why I started this program um, for young men, there'll be other versions, uh, faith based version. There'll be a, a version for women. But I wrote it based on it's called Walk With Me Impact. And it's what would I tell myself on a walk? So it's literally me talking to younger me in, in elementary, middle school, high school and help you navigate through these things that unfortunately I had to go through it to grow through it. So, and with nobody really coaching, mentoring, you know, 12 years old, I lost my, one of my, my first best friend to murder at 12 and never did an adult come to me like, are you okay? How are you doing? Can I help you? There was no therapy. My therapy was a bottle of mad dog, 2020 blunt after blunt, you know, whatever I could take to, to mask it, to, um, to stuff it. And then you do that over and over and over again without no release. So, yeah, prevention. How can and then helping people because some you can't necessarily stop the things that are coming, but if you have someone there that can help you understand it, hold your hand through it, help you cope with it, and not just let it go. So now years go by and you you got your baggage, trauma baggage, and then you have to deal with it as an adult when you finally realize, lived a little bit of life, like dang, wish I'd have had some help. Or you sometimes you don't even realize you needed help the whole time and you're just out here bad acting and don't know why. It's interesting that you talked about like that nobody ever approached you and said, hey, are you okay? Or what's going on with you? Why are you getting these bad grades or anything like that? And and after your friend's murder, nobody said, hey, are you okay? Is it as simple as like starting in first and second grade like what exactly are you doing like you go in and you're just like hey like you if something's going on there's someone for you to talk to or like what can you do that early for prevention right so like with this curriculum this program that I'm designing it's not for necessarily for me to use or a nonprofit for me my nonprofit this is for school districts uh youth programs juvenile detention all over the United States Canada whoever has these high risk, at risk youth, really for all youth, but it's aimed at that very, very delicate, vulnerable population of kids. And yeah, it starts in the first grade. There's different levels for the, you know, middle school, elementary, high school, but in elementary school, yes, like sometimes just talking to the kid. And then as the person who's facilitating it, the mentor, the guide, you need to understand before you even approach that kid, how to approach that kid, 
What do you need to recognize within yourself? So there's a lot of training. There's a facilitator's guide that's teaching the mentor how to be a mentor. You know, I've been in these programs and around programs and they, they throw surveys at the kids uh, beginning, pre, mid and post to see how the kid elevated. But they don't survey themselves. Like, how did you do as a mentor? Are you any good? Should yeah. you go take a break? You know what I mean? So we have surveys for those mentors to make sure you're and, and honestly, make sure you're doing OK, because a lot of these mentors like myself last year, I lost seven mentees, you know, mostly to murder and um, and second to overdose fentanyl. You know, so it's like I didn't have I didn't have a check and balance for myself. I just kept working when I should have sat down for a minute. You know, so a lot of these these core ingredients are, are given to the kids and it teaches the mentor to answer your question how to talk to that first grader. How do you help the first grader when that first grader loses a friend, when that first grader is getting abused, you know, and it's opening up, giving, creating a safe space for the kids to talk about it, to learn about it, to even know how to recognize it. Because sometimes the kids are going through these traumas and at the time they don't even recognize what they're going through. And it takes years sometimes and they sit back and like, man, maybe my mom's boyfriend shouldn't have been treating me like that. Right. I can cover a bunch of different topics, but just being able to recognize that as a kid. What would you classify as at risk? And like, how how does that work systemically? Like, what does that mean at risk? Right. So I'll give you my definition because at risk, you the, literally you could be at the risk of anything. I could be at the risk of drowning, standing too close to a pool and I can't swim. That's at, like, Lou, let's stop there. At the risk, you know, when, so how I'm meaning it when I say it, and sometimes like the, 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 the you know, the cool phrase, they change every season. There's a different term. Like even some people, if I say at risk now, they're like, no, it's at promise. And I'm like, mm-hmm. whatever you call it, I'm talking about these kids that need help. You can change the label all day long. Cool. Whatever the cool term is now, I'm talking about me as a 12 year old. I was at the risk. Like I was this close to robbing a store. I was this close to picking up a gun. I was this close to being a gang member, this close to uh, uh, using drugs. And, and at the risk to me is that kid, you're at the pool and you don't know how to swim. You're at the risk. And so some kids aren't necessarily right there at it. They have some kids, whether they have two parents or not, better community, more opportunities, more resources, you're at opportunity. You know, and some and those kids kids still mess up, you know, but when you're growing up in impoverished, at risk communities, marginalized communities, underprivileged communities, talking about uh, systemic racism that have, you know, through redlining, through all these conditions that force these people into that. You were born in this, born in poverty. You know, I, I just um, I went live with this the other day yesterday talking about. A lot of kids like myself, we got into crime and got criminal records as a juvenile. And it wasn't because we were monsters. We were doing something to get money, to get an opportunity. We stole from that store because I couldn't even ask for a dollar. That would I didn't have a dollar. I was tired of being poor. So I stole those clothes, switched tags. I, you know, when we were homeless and, um, as a kid, my, my first real, real crime was I was stealing food out the jack in the box window when people would pass it out because I didn't have any food. At any point in time, I could have caught a juvenile charge for that. That would have right. been theft. I could have been thrown in jail. Now I have a record. Now I'm in there getting turned into a criminal even more. You know, luckily I didn't, but at risk. That that so if I hopefully I answered that. But yeah, so yes, that's what did. I mean. 
Yeah. I think one of the things that can mediate that risk is having protective factors, right? So even if you're not, you know, even if you are born into poverty, having a really healthy relationship with your primary caregiver can be a protective factor in that or like, and I imagine the, the goal is for this program to be a protective factor for these kids. 100% protective factor for these kids, uh, a helping hand and helping the people. So like myself and uh, people like me that become mentors and there's different people that have love and heart for the youth and they might not come from lived experience. This is for them too. Um, but like myself, I never dealt with any of my traumas and baggage or growing up. I just had the heart to help the youth. So I needed this tool. I need this tool to be able to deliver the method correctly, understanding adverse childhood experiences, understanding you know, the population I'm dealing with more than just off my own experience, how to deal with their parents, the participants and kids' parents, because sometimes they're not all the way there. Or <laughs> I'm just saying, and I understand it coming from these at-risk communities. And how much do you think of what gets in the way of us helping these kids is us having the wrong conception of what causes problems, right? It's so like you were talking about, like you were stealing because you were hungry. But a lot of society right. doesn't understand that. And I think also a lot of society tends to view, you know, 12 year old black kids as adult men, you know, and like there is this yeah. sense of like we are just not seeing what is happening correctly. Is that something that you feel like you're often bumping up against? 100 percent. And that's that. Welcome to America. You know, I, this was before all of our times, before our grandparents times. So we're we're. We're living and we were born into a system that was already set up before we got here. So now fighting to correct it, that's that's a fight that's not going to end anytime soon. As we see, it's still crazy. The system is set up. The laws are set up crazy and they are the laws, you know, and just because you broke a law doesn't mean you're a bad person necessarily. Exactly. You know, at one point in time, slavery was a law, you know, yep. separate colored and white water fountains was a law. So if you broke it, then were you wrong morally as a person? You know, so to look at these man-made laws, you know, systemic laws that were made for, um, you know, certain demographic to prevail and others to stay in the condition they are. So now you take us to modern times now and a kid growing up who's like who looks at these black and brown kids in this community, the hood and like they like they want to be there. So it's like it's sub subconsciously it's put in there, whether you you really um learned about it or not. But no, there was a thing called redlining. There was a thing that pushed people into these circumstances, really, until we really teach all races, all people, the true history of this nation, of the way things got there. We're going to continue to have these problems. But uh, um, it's like turning a Navy ship in the water. You, if you want to U-turn and you're in a Navy ship, it's not instant. It takes a minute. And we're, we're turning, and I'm team human. We're getting there but it's not as fast as I would want. It's not going to be overnight because it wasn't set up like it's overnight. It was a lot of work that made to make this like it is this country, these laws. There was so much work to make it like this. It's interesting, too, that you serve time for cannabis, an industry that now is led by mothers and white people. And like, I think um, part of what you were talking about where things were illegal 
in order to keep black people or people of color in a certain place, right? Cannabis, I'm not sure what years you were in prison, but cannabis was was created in a lot of ways, like drugs were put into these communities in order for people like you to serve time so that then you have a criminal record, which could then be used against you. I mean, it's a, it's a complete cycle. Like, is it completely wild to now see the way that cannabis is handled and to know like from your own experience that it was truly just to put you in prison 100% that same that same case the same situation I was in I actually got two strikes two felonies from the same case um, one from the state feds picked it up I got another one from them I've been in nine different institutions across the United States for 10 pounds of weed um, that's now legal, like I said. But the now the the you know the government. I don't know if you've heard of cannabis social equity, but across this country, they're introducing cannabis social equity, apologizing for the failed war on drugs, recognizing that yeah, we targeted, uh, um, we targeted uh, blacks and brown people over this, over criminalized, and we know this. It's I'm not making this up. No conspiracy theory. Read the documents. You know it's there. You know, 87 percent of the industry are white male owners, you know. Right. So um, and you have to be like a millionaire to even play in this game to enter. So all the poor people, people like myself who have been in the industry since I was young, I'm priced out, got locked up for it. Now I'm locked out of it. You know, I never would have thought a day like this would come where we I just got off a meeting. We're talking about cannabis, social equity. The city I'm in right now, we're actually introducing a plan they exist throughout the United States and growing even more. So trying to right that wrong. If you expunge the record, you're able to then have more job opportunities. You're able to not have a background check run on you that stops you from getting employment. Like it's like being cut off at the pass every time. So yeah, the, I mean, the idea of prevention is like something that I think people say, well, this is a lost cause, but it's not a lost cause. It's it's the fact that everything is set up along the way, even the districts of where the schools are, even, right. you know, the amount of teachers, the payment of teachers, like it's all it's hard. I mean, how do you I know you're saying it's like a Navy ship turning around, but it must be so hard to be like, I'm working forward to these things that are purposefully being pushed back on. Like, it's not an accident. No, and it, it's sad. And it's at I can tell you the truth being in this fight. You make it makes you want to give up. It's like you're constantly yeah. fighting a brick wall. So on my end, I'm helping and fighting prevention, gang violence, drug use and abuse. And at the same time, I understand how it got there, why it's like this, like almost the setup and the trap for these young folks, for old folks. I see it clearly. And then you go and you wonder why, like um, I'm, I sit in these board meetings. I'm I'm on the mayor's advisory board here in my city. Um, I'm, I'm the chair of the Gang Intervention and Prevention Commission, and I see budgets and I see millions and millions going other places. And I, I was driving yesterday and thinking this to myself, honestly, they don't care. They don't care enough about these lives. If they, When you care enough about a problem, you put your money into it. You invest into it. There are these community groups all over the United States that are doing this work on bare bones, scraping begging, grant funding, barely scraping the surface. Watch the news yesterday and I see UCSD get one point something billion dollars for research. I would love to do it. We need research on stuff, medical, you know, things and stuff like that. But I bet some of that went to the Galapagos turtles 
I bet some of that research went to uh, how do we how do we get slime off seal fins? I bet you some millions went to uh, uh, coral reef exploration. Like we got enough of that. Can we save these lives? Have you yeah, seen the whole those reefs? Hey, fuck those reefs. Fuck. That's what I say. No, hey, we hey, do not take you a fuck. hard anti-environmental. You press first. Fuck them reefs. <laughs> Hey, hey, but hey, and I'm like, I, I like, I'm so empathetic I imagine for it's everybody and everything. Yeah. No, for real, and I, I'm empathetic. Like, come on, yeah. somebody needs to fight for the seals. I get it, but I imagine it's frustrating. Yeah, but shit, I got kids dying. You know, yeah. we got a fentanyl epidemic that no one's barely talking about because it came from the pharmaceutical industry. It yeah. hadn't been something that that poor black people created. Everybody be getting arrested right now. No. Yeah. Come yeah. on. You're not talking about fentanyl because who makes it? Yeah. Who makes fentanyl? Okay. The pharmaceutical anyway. companies. What do you Come do on. for to get someone to, to replace? Let's say like you want a kid to not get involved in gangs. Is it, what do you do? You're replacing it with like other activities or. An education. Like what? So um, 100%. So it's not the gang. That's the problem. The Republicans are a gang. The Democrats are a gang. The Omegas, the side, the, they're gangs. They're groups of people. The Chargers are a gang. The Rams are a gang. People, as human beings, we want to belong. We have a natural inclination to want a desire to be accepted, to belong. Now, you take these black and brown young youth that primarily are going into these into these gangs they, they've been rejected. They don't have money for Little League. They don't have money for these these for Boy Scouts, for these other groups. They don't they don't they've been rejected by society. They've been talked about. They've been clowned by media subconsciously since they were born. They don't think they're worth anything. Now, all of a sudden, this group of kids in your neighborhood that claim whatever they claim, they love you. They accept you. You don't have to pay for entry. You don't have to do anything outside of having heart. Oh, I got that. Yeah, my pants are flooded. I got holes in my jeans, but I got heart. And the more heart you show, the more you're accepted. And now you got this violence and, and a, a fight that started a long time ago. And we won't get into where crack came from right. and that whole CIA stuff. Okay, anyway. Um, but read, Just read Gary Webb's reporting. That's yeah, all you need to know about Gary the crack Webb epidemic. Report. Gary Webb. Oh, he's telling me. You said it, I didn't. <laughs> Gary Webb. Yes, but in, yeah, so 100%. So I get it. So I'm fi fighting to get them to, to yeah, that replacement, find another activity, accept them for who they are, because they're not monsters. They're doing what they con got conditioned to do. They're and children. there's no replacement. They say, stop gangbanging. Okay, now what? Stop selling drugs that you're using to feed your family. Okay, now what? You won't give me a job. You won't, you know, I don't even believe I can do these other jobs anywhere. It's so it, it is making it for, for one, like this curriculum, the first set of books in this curriculum for the kids are core directions, core beliefs, believing in yourself, the golden rule, how to understand relationships between people, how to understand yourself, because I can't teach you and tell you to stop doing these things unless I, I hit your core. So that core is there first. And then my main goal is, Right now, it's set up for you to die and go to prison. I need to prevent those two things so you can get old enough to live long enough so you can actually understand life. When I was 15 years old, one of my best friends, he had just committed murder. He was 15, too. I was in that courtroom when, when he got off with self-defense. I was over there happy that my friend got off because it's my friend. 
I seen, but the family on the other side of the courtroom was sad and crying and I didn't understand their pain at the time. I was just happy my friend got off. We left there, that same friend a year later at 16, he was murdered. Ran uh, uh, shot to death and ran over by a truck, murdered. You know, got to see his dead body. Now feeling that pain now. And then over and over and over again as I grew up, I feel, I rebind to that time so bad and I understand that family's pain. But I had to live life first to understand what loss was like. These 15, yeah. 16, 17 year old kids don't understand that yet. They haven't lived long enough. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. How important is just giving the language and also the permission to talk about your emotions, right? Because I imagine a lot of these kids, that's not like what they're used to, that they maybe there is stigma around even being able to talk about your emotions or thinking that that's something that you should do. Is, is some of the program just directed at like making that more, you know, accepted and normalized? And, and normalized? So 100% yes. And I think even beyond out, at risk youth and marginalized communities, we're just like that as people, period, where you can't talk about your emotions. Like, especially even more so for men, you got this whole persona, you got to be tough, you can't, but everybody has that. You're weak if you cry. Well, I think we're, I've been noticing over the past 10 years, we've been breaking away from that. I've been seeing more of my, my homies cry and tell each other we love each other. Like, that's new. Before, you know, like look at rap music before you couldn't come out and be a rapper if you wasn't hardcore gangster. Now you can, you know, you can have skinny jeans on a, a, a man purse and you could be a skateboarder. You could that didn't exist back in the 80s, early 90s. You had to even if you felt like that, that's how you were. You had to be tough leather. You were a gangster. Yeah. Like, no, you weren't. No, you weren't a gangster then either. OK, but anyway, so with this curriculum and the way it's designed, it, you know, that set up and suggested that you hold it in a restorative practice healing circle uh, for one, putting everybody on even space, including the facilitator. It's oh, it's a creating a safe space and talking about these things, um, certain issues. So the kids and participants can, can feel comfortable enough to express themselves, talk about it. Like I said, that first piece of the curriculum is the core beliefs, the core ingredients that are going into you believing yourself and the second book that they go into is kind of like a choose your own adventure style storybook where i took real stories no filter of me and my friends through middle school and high school in the episodes we went through from stds gang violence from committing crimes from when like there's an episode in there my friend's uh mom's boyfriend punched him in the mouth and knocked his teeth out and us we rally up to go attack this grown man like these are in these stories child homelessness. So as you're reading about these other kids going through similar situations that you may have went through or going to go through because things haven't really changed, you know, so you are able to relate. You're hearing them. So now that then I said, choose your own adventure. So you come one day, you're reading the story up until this high highlight point. It ends there that, you know, with with of what you what would you do if you were in that position of these kids? And then you're charged with going home, processing it, think about it. So when you come back to whatever day that next class is, you're now going to talk about it. Everyone in there gets to say what you would do if you were in that situation. And then when also when they go home, it's paired up. We have audio music, rap music that goes with it. 
So a song that's relatable to what they just read. So your homework, only homework is to listen to that song and not know rinky dink nursery rhyme stuff, something you're really going to like. You might listen to it a few times. You might just love the song because I know how important music is. Music ran my life. You know, I don't remember anything a school teacher ever taught me, but I remember every Snoop Dogg line from 1993. There's a reason for that, you know? And unfortunately, he was telling me the wrong stuff at the time. (laughs) No offense to Snoop Dogg. I love him. He was misguided, too. He was doing what he did. So when they come back, we talk about it. Now the kids are forced with to process it. Hear other kids talk about what they would do. And then you hear, okay, well, this is what really happened in that situation. And for those people, because this is a curriculum for anybody to use, there's some people, let's just say me and you. You have a room, a room full of, of black boys, uh, brown boys from the hood. And I, I don't know where your background, nothing. I'm just saying just based off appearance. And here's this white lady that's talking to them about not doing this gang stuff and this. So you mean you could be saying the same exact words verbatim, but they'll listen to me differently. Right. But that doesn't mean you do not need to give the kids that love and that heart that you have. So we packaged up the lived experience experts for video visual aids. So you go through the curriculum and you know that saying real recognize real those kids Mm -hmm. recognize. So when you have this young man, like I got this guy on who did 10 years in in prison at from 17 on for a crime. He wasn't even at a gang crime. Like when you have this man telling you on top of what you just said, we're planting those seeds, you know? So, yeah. Do you do how does it work with restorative justice in the sense of like, you know, it's tough because it's like it'll be a young kid. Maybe they'll commit a violent crime. There is a victim, but the the kid is also a victim. It's a cycle. So like how how do you ever work with like, okay this is how you can make amends or this is how, you know, like, is there any sort of like restorative justice aspect of it? Or what do you do if a kid's like, I hit an old woman when I was trying to rob this bank. You know what I mean? Like trying to rob this bodega or whatever. Right. So I've been there and I, I know sometimes there's situation. We're trying to prevent those situations from happening, period, with this curriculum. But say period, that happened. Yeah. Like I know this majority of the time, these kids aren't monsters. There was no malice or ill intent. They got into what they got into. If there's a place, like I'll take that example, you hit this old lady. Let's figure out how we can, you know, pay that back if it's even an area, but through talking with her, talking with maybe her advocate, if there's a way to pay that back. But there are some crimes, some offenses that you, you they need to go sit down for, you know, this doesn't, this isn't a free pass to go around and beat people up and, and, and hurt people and harm people. And now you have a free pass because, oh, I'm sorry, I grew up wrong. Like, unfortunately, it's not like that. So you may have to pay for that situation. And then just being in my same role, like when I was 21, I was in prison two months before I came home. My brother was murdered by four kids, 14, 15, 17, and 19 Sorry. years old, right? They were on a shooting spree. They had shot 12 people, killed two that day. They killed my brother. When they were, so these kids, you know, laws changed since that happened to where juveniles couldn't get charged as adults. They all had a hundred years plus when they got tried. And then they got, at, you know, they were able to get out. One of them got out and killed somebody else. You know, but he had been from 15 on been turned into a, an animal in prison. So it's like it, it, it's a it's a thin line. Like, what do you do? Because it's all good when you say, yeah, restorative practice with certain crimes. And then it happens to you or it happens yeah. to your mom. You know, I might feel differently how it happened to my mom. Like, I'm not thinking of no restorative practice. I might be thinking about, hey, kid, come here. 
you know, but <laughs> maybe it's uh, maybe it's to do with reforming the prison system so that people don't come out worse off than they went in. One hundred percent. You know, America, we have more prisons here than the entire world combined has prisons. We have right. no we we are the leading prison industry place ever in the and in they're the, private. The they make money. One, a lot of them, not all of them private, but a lot of them are. But either way, there's big companies and corporations that are invested into these prisons. Wells Fargo, you know, U.S. Bank. There's the Pack the Pack Bell. There, there's uh, big corporations that are invested into these prisons. So I, I get it, you know. And if we ever really did end crime, if in the hood alone, let's just take the hood. If we were able to stop or end crime, we might cripple the economy. Think of how many people would be out of work. How many judges, lawyers. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> we've janitors. had we've had people on say similar stuff. One hundred percent. That would be detrimental to our economy. There's whole cities and towns around this nation that live off of that prison in the in the neighborhood. Before we move on, I'd I'd love to ask, what are some of the things that you're the proudest of in these last twelve years that you've been an activist? Like, what change have uh, you seen happen? Tremendous life change. So where this that say directly why this curriculum even exists. Um, I, the past year, 2021, I lost a loved one every single month of the year, right? Seven mentees buried my cousin to murder in November. Um, it's been nonstop. Some of the months there was two individuals and I say, friend, I mean, close loved ones, right? One individual, a 15 year old boy died of an overdose. I talked to him. I talked to him two hours before he passed away. FaceTime, he called me. So, I'm these, so sorry. these these blows oh good these blows hit deep. So when I went into creating and fi- finishing this curriculum because it's been hanging on me for about three years off and on, but I'm too busy working. I've just had the time now to really bring it to a culmination. I took the stuff I've learned in these twelve years of actual practices. I've seen work. So to answer your question, I've seen the lives change. I've seen people go from from zero to a hundred. I've seen them. Uh, one kid who's on our youth, we have a youth consultancy board that's helping with this curriculum. This one individual on here, he'd been on crystal meth from 15 to 22 years old. He's been clean for three years now. Fitness instructor, motivational speaker. I've seen and I know what works. I know what works. I have the youngest kid on the consultant board right now is a 15 year old kid who's lost four friends this past year, murder, overdose. He's 15 you know, seen his friend killed. He's with me. And he, his whole hope is to help other kids learn how to grieve because it, grieving for him took him into a dark space and isolation. And he knows, you know, so I've seen the work that that I've done, that I've been a part of with other people, because it's not just our mind. There's a bunch of good people out here doing this good work. So I took the best practices from those things that I've seen touch lives, change lives, and I put them into this box for other people to use. You know, like the facilitator's guide. I got into this 12 years ago. I still don't know of a book I could go to that's going to help me be a better mentor. That's going to teach me about how to deal with death. How do you talk? You know, I said no adult came to talk to me about death, but they didn't know how. I can't blame them. What would you say? This kid's friend just recently, last month, we had a kid in um, by San Diego State University. He was sitting in the car. His best friend or friend is shot in the head and murdered. He's in the car outside of a house party. What do you say to that kid? Yeah. It's going to be okay. Your friend's in a better... What do you say? So uh, there's some ingredients in this book that's going to help you through experience that I've, you know, I've been able to gather and help people help people. 
That's really beautiful. Would Would you like to now play um, a very silly game show? Right a after very, I talk about murder, death, and <laughs> I know a very frivolous game show. Hey, thank you. Please let's lighten this real quick, but but it's serious. <laughs> I never know how right. to do the transition after a tough conversation, but you know, it's like okay, and now for the games. <laughs> I, it's so it is. It's like that though. Oh boy! But I will say, humor humor is a powerful coping mechanism. 100%. Good work, Allison. Hundred <laughs> percent. Um, so this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You're going to ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in that scenario. And then I sometimes agree, and sometimes I disagree. Okay, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You have been married to your spouse for six years, but for the first few months of your relationship, you weren't exclusive. You find out that after you had a discussion to become exclusive, four months into your relationship, your partner went on one final date with the other person they were seeing at the time to, quote, let them down easy and ended up sleeping with them one final time. You only find this out years later because you run into that person at your high school reunion and it comes up. Also, they are your lifelong nemesis. Would you stay with this cheater? Oh my God, there's so many twists and turns. (laughs) Is this open dialogue? I forgot, I might've missed that rule. I'm so into the story. No, yes. Oh, any questions you have, happy to help. Based on what you said and the years later, and it was like four months in and this exactly what you said, they have an opportunity. If they have not done it since then and that that happened, it would be, you know, I know that would damage trust a little bit because tell the truth. You know what I mean? Just tell the truth, good, bad or ugly. Tell the truth. But if exactly how you laid it out, they may have an opportunity. I mean, I, I wouldn't just dismiss that relationship. Now, here's my question. Yes. Did I find out about it from the nemesis? Yes. The nemesis yeah. told you. Ooh, that's hard for me. That's going to be hard for me. <laughs> okay, wait, now follow up. Is the nemesis lying? Wait. No, the nemesis no. is not lying. <laughs> no, she didn't say that. There was no lie. <laughs> and the nemesis gives you a pretty vivid play-by-play of what happened that night. No! Oh, that's, that's foul. <laughs> that's foul. I don't like, no, okay. Ugh. How long have we been together? We've been married God. for six years now. So this happened about eight years ago. It's too late. It's too late. You're already married. You're married. It's just too late. That's done. And you haven't done anything like that since then. I mean, it, it's still, there's, there's an argument that's going to happen. There's some hurt. There's some disbelief. You sure. know, all that yeah. trust is damaged slightly. But I'm like, nah, you're already too invested in that one. Why am I at my high school reunion anyway? I would never do that. No, because you Facebook. you recently <laughs> you recently came into a, a huge business opportunity and you're very wealthy and you want to throw it in your nemesis's face only for them to throw this in your face. God, what? That's what you get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I get. That's, That's what, what I get. get. Your, your nemesis was that important to your life all these years. You wanted to prove yourself. Oh, I have this job. Oh, yeah. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> she was really holding on to that, too, huh? Yep. Yeah, she had. She, Perfect that's timing. the only reason she, she was came like, to the reunion. <laughs> was to tell you that? <laughs> God, the 
this is unhealthy. You both came to brag. <laughs> but wow. I think I think you're both right that you probably stay, but you can bring it up whenever you're in an irritated mood, which is a really okay, healthy like that. way to have a relationship. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child, eight, is having a birthday pool party and really wants to have water guns. Being anti-gun, you refuse and decide instead to get them a bunch of turkey basters that the kids (laughs) can shoot at each other. (laughs) When you present the turkey basters to the kids during the party, everyone makes fun of your kid and starts calling them baby baster. Also, the basters do not squirt well. Are you a terrible parent? (laughs) No, you're not a terrible parent. You're a funny one, though. I would make that a joke. (laughs) I agree. I think uh, as someone who's anti-gun and whose parents would not allow us to have anything like that, turkey baster it is, baby. (laughs) But the water, the water barely goes anywhere. It just sort of dribbles out. Why did we not do water balloons? That's a great question. That's what my parents did. We did a water balloons all the time. All the time until that kid peed in one and then threw it at me. Then it was no more water balloons. <gasps> oh, no. That's fair. Yep. That's a harsh yep. real- realization when you get hit with a water balloon and the smell reaches you and you're like, oh, no, man. When the taste, when the ta- when the taste ah! reaches you. Ah! <laughs> then, then there's a okay, fight. Okay, no water balloons. Actually, water is banned. My child will not party. see any water. There's no water. You're pre-plan. You got to pre-make the water balloons and put them in one of those big plastic pools. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I'm Don't afraid. give them access to balloons. Did the, does it hurt when you get hit with a water balloon? Kind of, but that's that's part of it. Right. That's part of it? Yeah. You know what the I don't other remember thing is? ever hurting. Yeah, I hope they, I don't know. I think, I just really think that someone should create water turkey basters for that specific reason and advertise them in children's stores. Wait, wait, hold on. I think you're telling a little truth about yourself here. Did you do this to your kid? It was the water base. Are you planting something here? Turkey baster? I don't know. That's what it sounds like. I am formulating my book on parenting ideas, so it might go in there. Oh, God. Uh, you're going to do a parenting book? Yeah, right. just filled with things from hypotheticals that went over well. Yeah. How about you might have just created something, though. So it can be a turkey baster, but not. Like you made it specifically for kids with a little squeeze thing, and they're inexpensive and they'll buy them. It really costs you three, three cents to make, but you sell it mm-hmm. for $4.95. And they what are we on? Shark Tank? <laughs> <laughs> with- you're a great parent and an even better entrepreneur. Right. I'll I'll put in $100,000 for tw- 25% of this company. That's that's too much. I'll give you 18. Um <laughs> we can negotiate. Okay, our final game. Would you forgive this liar? Before going into your yearly performance review at your job, you ask one of your cis straight white male coworkers what they make each year. They tell you an incredibly high number that makes you irate given your current salary. You go into the review riled up and demand a huge raise citing other people's salaries. Your bosses are confused because no one in the department actually makes that much. 
You realize that your coworker lied to you. And when you confront them, they said they only did it to help empower you to fight for what you are worth. Would you forgive this liar? Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. I'm the I'm the dummy, you know. <laughs> No, I would believe it. So he like said to me, like, I make $7 million a year, but like my salary is $25,000 a year. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I storm into my boss's (laughs) office saying, I deserve to make $7 million a year, just like Derek does. And they're like, who? His name isn't even Derek. He's been letting me call him Derek. There's no Derek that works there. Uh, You don't even go here. He's he's joking. (laughs) Joke's on you. I'm already so irate anyway as a person that like someone riling me up to be even more irate. I really can't. It's very it. dangerous with you, Gabby. <laughs> You'd have to have hidden cameras for that. That's like something, a, a, a serious prank. I forgot the MTV show. You would show think that's funny. Armand, you would find that funny? You would find yeah. that funny. I'd be, I'd be <laughs> mad, but that is hilarious. If, 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 you, if you weren't the person... And you knew that happened. Like right now, you'd be busting up. Your guys would be laughing just like this right now if this was somebody else. So why wouldn't it be funny if it was you? Hella funny. That's a great philosophy of life. If you laughed, if it happened to somebody else, then you should laugh when it happens to you. Right. If this if this was somebody else and you heard this story, your ass would be laughing. Laughing. I would. I, wait, I don't know. Let me know. I don't know what you laugh at. I'm laughing. That shit's funny. What happened? Ah. Uh, yeah i'd love to see how confused the bosses were too right (sighs) to be a fly fine all right so we forgive him we not only forgive him we say hey great goof (laughs) (laughs) no you might be mad at first but but that's all on you why did your ass go in there demanding like no you just got riled up dummy (laughs) (laughs) honestly you just got riled up dummy should be the title of my book (laughs) <laughs> hey, that's, that's copywritten. We'll talk about what's the You just got riled up, dummy. A memoir. Well, <laughs> our producer's laughing. <laughs> oh my goodness! Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can everyone find out all the amazing things that you're doing, and also hopefully get involved in this program? Well, yes. Well, this is the call to action because we have a Kickstarter running right now until the end of August. August 31st is the last day we're trying to we're going to raise. We need to raise the funds to complete this um, prototype, to get this uh, um, completion of the project. Walk with me impact on Kickstarter. Please support. And other than that, my name's Armand King. I'm not hard to find. You name a social media platform. More than likely, I'm there. So thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about our worst takes. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for topics. X, 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 baby. 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 Oh. Oh, cute. <laughs> oh, cute. <laughs> Um, well, we just found out Melissa comes from an alternate universe where the Disney Channel had something called Zoots. No, Zoom. Zooms. I don't know. It's This is a Mandela effect. I don't remember this at I all. I also have this other memory that I've been 
asking people for the last few weeks. Does anybody remember Abercrombie in the 90s? You could get like an Abercrombie email address. Really? (laughs) No one remembers. (laughs) Melissa, I think you got dropped here from the multiverse (laughs) of madness. And you're from a different time. I would believe that. But you 100% could get an Abercrombie email address. Did you have one? Yes. What was it? I'm not saying. Come on. Mm -mm. Come on. You know who's a model for Hollister? Mal Blum. Mal Blum. My my fiance. Maybe Mal has some inside information that they can ask the people at Hollister to get back to the people at Abercrombie, who I know no longer work there because the company has completely changed. Big fan of Abercrombie. My my pants are from Abercrombie. But like, (sighs) I need to know about the email addresses. I just need one person to confirm it for me. Okay, someone confirm it, please. Please. I said ask Mal to get to the people. Oh, oh, oh. I'll ask Mal. Mal Mal's top dog over at Hollister now. So. <laughs> okay, great. So now everyone's very excited for this topic, I'm sure. Yeah, our worst takes. Yeah. What what are some of yours? <laughs> are you is that a joke? I, I told you I was gonna open a scroll <laughs> and they were gonna roll. Now here's what would be funny is if people thought that I was going to like list things from years ago, but I just start listing stuff I've said weeks before. (laughs) Just like, no, look, man, you want to go through my cancellation campaigns. Go, go have a good time. Yeah. I think I said some stuff that led to the notion that I thought that because someone was nice to me, they couldn't possibly have sexually assaulted others. That was a, that was 24. 15 maybe where that sort of misunderstanding came about uh which was like a huge misunderstanding on the internet that basically came from something i said but got i uh, you know very a lot of it has been me not wanting to admit i'm wrong so knowing immediately that i was wrong but just like not d- for many complicated reasons not just saying that um and a lot of it could have just been uh me say nothing I got we had an episode with Becky Albertalli on this show uh, where we addressed a feud that she and I had that was largely started by me having a stupid take on something. If you want to hear that whole episode, you can go listen to that for for that. Uh, You know, like I think I said I think I've said a lot of stuff that I was just like talking out of my ass and then forced to defend. But nobody was forcing me to defend it the whole time. I could have just said, you guys are right. (laughs) Like, I I wasn't saying the right thing. You know, I've been going through a lot of old JBU videos because I've been making these compilations for TikTok, Just Between Us Pod. And I think it's funny that I had such a kill all men personality and then ended up being a man. What a twist. So I think I've come to, I think I've come to, to like some of the stuff that I said back then. I'm like, you had no gender nuance to that whatsoever. (laughs) I remember early on the two of us getting into a fight or a disagreement about the police. And I was kind of saying that not all police were bad. And really, I I don't remember that at all. Or I just remember being maybe I didn't say that, but I was just like surprised. And this is like this is like 2014, like surprised by your visceral visceral for the visceral. Yeah. For the police. And I and 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 now my visceral pro police no 
anti-police. Oh, I was super anti-police. You were super anti-police. And I think that that wasn't quite yet in the zeitgeist as much. And I mm. and I was still at the beginning of my journey with that, where like I understood there were a lot of bad police, but I wasn't yet at the place of 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 getting rid of the police or defunding the police. <laughs> and I remember being like kind of like shocked by by how you were like, no, all police are bad and, and supporting the police in any way is bad. And I was like, oh, that's that's a wild take. And now I'm like, absolutely. I hate the police. Yeah. I would never call the police. I'm like so I stand with you on that. I, I felt the same way. Right. Yeah. Like that was, was like, like a big there, change there, for me. There's some good ones, you know. Yeah. That they that they know. No, I, I'm completely against it. Because I just, it was such, like, I was very much like, oh, some, some bad apple thing. But now I was like, no, the entire system is rotting from the inside. Yep. I had a lot of really wild takes. And I think it was one of those things where like a broken clock is right twice a day. You know what I mean? (laughs) Where like, I was just saying wild stuff over and over again. And then sometimes, and very radical, but then sometimes it would be like, that's not even what but like it it was nice that a lot some of it held up you know <laughs> i think the thing i'm most embarrassed about that i've been called out on as i should have been on this show was that like my my false belief that people had access to therapy like i used to think that like oh, oh okay like if you if you cared about your mental health then you could get therapy and now i understand that that's very much not true and i'm embarrassed that i ever said it I I think you had good intentions. Your intentions were pure. But it was so it was so deeply misinformed because you always grown up with it. So you just. Right. Yeah. And I always had I always had the personal resources and I didn't understand how inaccessible it is. And I think also that I think I think I used to think that all therapists were good at therapy and I don't believe that anymore. I think that there are a lot. And that's what going to therapy school has taught you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to go along with that, I used to think everybody had healthcare. Like I thought Mm -hmm. that it was something that everyone had. If you weren't going to the doctor, that was on you because you couldn't access it. And then I also was the assumption under the assumption that like, this was when I was in my twenties that like everyone was still under their parents' healthcare until Mm -hmm. they were 26. And I wasn't putting into account that their parents might not have healthcare. So then they didn't have healthcare either. So yeah, just I think it's just a lot of things that that I grew up with thinking was the norm yeah. and it wasn't. Yeah. Well, it's hard, right? Yeah. Like, how are you not supposed to? Yeah, yeah, like you can't know what you don't know. Right. Which is something I think about all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but even I had like a lot of stuff that I, I did and said in the past were very gendered in these very specific ways that because I was trying so hard to be a feminist and so like pro-woman, anti-man that it like comes across now as sort of like, Gabby, like, come on. Also, one thing that I keep seeing in the clips between me and you is me being like commenting on your body or being jealous of you. Like there's been a couple moments where I've been like, well, but you have a flat stomach, which is like really wild to see from the past. I think I've also thought it was okay to talk about other people's body in a way that I would never talk about people's bodies now. But I also think that was like very normalized. Yeah. Yeah. You and I would, would like pick at each other, not pick at each other, but like compliment each other by putting ourselves down. Like there is one video where I'm just like, well, you have a flat stomach and I don't like, it's very like, 
Yeah. It's, it's very early, early 2010s girl stuff. I also think that I used to believe that if, if somebody wasn't ready to commit to their partner right away, then that meant that the relationship was doomed. Like I used to <laughs> think that like if if like these couples were like they were they were taking like years to get married, then I was like, oh, and like maybe one person was ready, but the other person wasn't ready. But I was like, well, then that's just the wrong couple. And now I'm like, oh, no, some people just are on different timelines. Like, I think I had a lot of like conceptions about what a right relationship looked like and how it was supposed to play out that I no longer have. Yeah. I think we've grown like I think a lot of what's happened for us is is growing older, nuance and meeting different types of people or having access to different types of, of perspectives and information, which these people have, you know, I'm thinking specifically about fat acceptance people like have lovingly provided that they shouldn't have to, you know, flay themselves with their vulnerabilities for us to understand what's going on. But like there have been some great activists that have completely changed my mind about a lot of stuff and helped me with a lot of self-hatred and completely changed the way I would talk about things. And I think the same for like a lot of trans activists, like completely changed the way that I would that I would view queerness or that I would talk. I mean, I'm saying even as a queer person, there are a lot of moments in JBU that I am being transphobic, which is interesting. Yeah. I'm talking specifically about like women having vaginas. I'm talking specifically about like not liking all men without taking into account that they're, that men also have feelings and that there are also different types of men who come from different backgrounds and experiences. Like, I positioned myself as the sort of like woke radical one and I was imperfect, you know? What's that like being imperfect? I don't know. (laughs) I'm honestly like, like I have fucked up a lot. Like you want to go through our worst takes? Like I have fucked up a lot. And like, it's because we've been online for almost a decade Things have changed. My opinions have changed. My thoughts have changed. I've read a different book, whatever it is. And sometimes in the moment, I really thought what I was doing was for the greater good. Or in the moment, I didn't even care about it that much. I just said it flippantly. And it was something that really affected someone else. But it's because we had these platforms. So it's like, so like us having, us having ideas that we don't hold anymore. It's like permanently online. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's Wild. hard and I, you know, I I try to give other people grace for the fact like mm-hmm. you know, just like the cultural context of the time when something was said versus now. Mm-hmm. Because I do think we live in a very different world than 10 years ago, which is a good thing. But yeah, I mean like yeah, like I I think also this is like so silly, but watching these old JBU videos in a sense I'm like and I feel weird saying this and maybe I'll regret it, but in a sense, I'm like, thank God I didn't know how beautiful I was. <laughs> and I know that that's like so weird, but like I had no, I like I, I, I had no idea that I looked that way when I was that age. Yeah, like, it was very apparent. I thought that I was like regular at best, disgusting at, at certain angles. Like I would, I would, look at my body and I think it was like I would criticize and I look at these videos and I'm like oh my god that girl is beautiful 
<laughs> and that's giving like grace, but even just like that that girl is it, it needs to like realize and love herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I had no idea. And I'm like, I, I'm so curious. And like, look, like I don't think I look terrible now, but I look older. My body's different. Like whatever, like I, the beauty standards, it's all bullshit, but whatever. But like, you know, like looking at videos of me when I was 26, I'm like, what would it have been like? And I remember I was on this date with this guy in like my, my like probably, I was probably like 23 or something. And he had like worked with like a famous actress or, and I was like, oh, like, was she so beautiful? And he was like, yeah, but like no different than like you. And I remember being like, that's such a weird thing for him to lie to me about. Do you know, like, oh. I just like assumed it was like a line or a lie. And I was like, they, like in my head, I could not conceptualize the concept that I was as pretty as this like mainstream, very popular actress or whatever. Yeah. And like looking back, I'm like, oh my God, I had no idea how other people probably were perceiving me at that time because my yeah. idea of myself was so different. <laughs> yeah. Is that weird to yeah. say? No, you no. I mean, I think you're gorgeous now, but it's like yeah, very funny. Like, yeah, you were like, I think I look at us sometimes in our old JBU videos and I'm like, for the time for wanting to be in Hollywood, for wanting to be on television and those very minor standards that that has, we were hot in that word. And also, you know, it's interesting for me. It's so funny to look back on it because I do watch it. I feel so much better now. I feel so much more confident. I feel so much like whatever. And back then, I I don't feel bad about it. Like people are like, do you feel bad that there's so many videos of you as a woman? And I'm like, no, like good for that girl. Like she's fucking hot. She's crushing it. She looks good. Like she's confident. Like, you know, like good for her. Was it absolutely looking back drag? For sure. Was I like being a woman as a bit? Yeah, definitely. But like I at the time thought that's what everyone was doing. (laughs) I guess that maybe my my bad take was that like I thought, oh, if I could look a certain way, then I could achieve a level of happiness. Happiness. Whereas what I've learned is like I don't look that way anymore and I'm happier. Like it's interesting. You know, that was that was the wrong take. And my wrong take was that nobody would love me unless I did this Jessica Rabbit thing. Right. Like that nobody was going to love me. Nobody was going to want to date me. There would be no one left for me in the world. No one want people wanting to fuck me was the highest level. Like I Mm -hmm. needed people to want to fuck me. And if people and if I didn't look like. (laughs) But it's now it's different people, you see. Okay. And also, I realized that I, it, I don't have to play that game. I was doing this sort of va va voom thing as like a way to whatever. And like now I'm like, oh, you never needed that. You just are, a, you just needed your personality and your, uh, and your skills and your charm and your, you know, whatever it is. And like everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. I get it. So it was just, yeah, it was, it's, it's night. Nice. Like, but I don't feel bad. I'm like, mm. look at her. Good for her. but I've had some terrible takes like I've had I'm sure you know like I don't stand by almost any of the things that have gotten me in trouble and yet while they were getting me in trouble I doubled down on them why well we talk about that all the time because it's like a defense mechanism it's so uncomfortable to be wrong but then when you take the time to reflect on that it would be different if you didn't reflect and then change your attitude or stance on the position I do. And then I do change my stance, but it it doesn't. But I have to let go of like, it doesn't matter because like the majority of people are still like still think I'm a certain way. And that's fine. You know, 
people only know us, some of us, by our worst takes. And like, that's okay. All I can do is be like, I feel, I, I've learned and I feel differently. And I, after a decade on the internet, of course, you know, we're going to have different opinions. And even in real life, even if you're not doing it on the internet, you know, I, I have friends who are like, oh my God, like five years ago at a party, I said that I didn't know about trans people using bathrooms. And now I'm like mortified that five people might remember I said that, you know what I mean? Like, Oh, well, I know that like there are so many people who must remember me as unlikable and like annoying and like socially not with it. And how has it changed? That's our show. (laughs) (laughs) What do we rate this episode? I rate it 15 out of 14 growth and change, you know, a lot of I think a lot of the through line of this episode is growth Mm -hmm. and change. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, pretty beautiful. It is. I'll rate it 60 out of 50 lizard pets. (laughs) Yes. And I'll rate it 31 out of 27 facilitator curriculums. Oh, wow. Well, thank you to Armand King for being our guest. We will have the link for his Kickstarter in the description. So please contribute if you're able to. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Monts. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash Team or on our channel, youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also at Allison Raskin, at She Is Not Melissa, at Gabby Road, Emotional Support Lady Substack, patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn, and also Allison's book, Overthinking About You. Go and leave a Goodreads or an Amazon review. Um, You can also go to Scribd and see my book, Stimulus Rack. But Allison's, give them reviews. Okay, bye. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.